Nicole Bremner here with John Corey. Thank you very much, John, for coming all the way out to Hackney to join me in the studio here for our podcast. Now, John and I have known each other for about, I think, four years now. I, I met him via the various property groups on, I think, Property Tribes, first of all, and then Facebook. And we met and he invited me up to the Shard for uh, a cup of tea, as he does. I think he works from the Shard most days. Is that right, John? <laughs> uh, I've been known to be there on a frequent basis. So let's put it that way. Don't want to reveal all the secrets quite yet. No, not yet, not yet. So, uh, yeah, John John knows everyone in property. And and that's what makes him... One of the reasons that he's so interesting is he he, tends, he knows everyone and he's got a very broad knowledge base. So it's always really interesting to talk to him about a whole broad range of topics, which is what we're going to do today. So first of all, John, you've got a really interesting background because you started off in Silicon Valley. And as people can hear, you are American. Uh, maybe they can hear, but we can clarify that by I can <laughs> yes. say a few more words. <laughs> in fact, if I go into my Bostonian accent, I can talk about parking the car at Harvard Yard. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then no one will understand yeah, exactly, you. Exactly. Yeah. So... Um, Jumping sort of backwards in time, I graduated with a computer science degree, and in the U.S. that's actually not a bad thing, but I am old enough that it was still sort of uncommon. Um, when I moved from um, Massachusetts out to the West Coast, I went from where I graduated to Eula Packard, so I started in Silicon Valley in 1982. Um hmm little funny anecdote. It didn't mean anything at the time, but it's sort of like, wow, now. So I was actually paid as part of my day job to be online and be contributing in forums and working with people that way. And it's actually how myself and another a group of us actually um, invented or defined or created or brought to life the Hewlett Packard Unix standard that got them into the Unix business. Oh, wow, and we did okay. all that online for yeah. two years. So when I like to joke that it was just after the Stone Age where we didn't have to use stone tablets, but we did have modems. The machines had to talk with single hops. There was no internet. Maybe it was called ARPANET then. Certainly no web. This is like 10 years, 12 years before the web was invented. Yeah, because that was it became mainstream more around the mid-90s, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I have an invention story we can get to uh, okay, on that. Sure. But anyway, I was at Pack for eight years. And um, did some interesting things. Many of these things in your life is probably the same, Nicole, that you only discover later which ones were the interesting ones. Yeah. That you work on things now, you you pick stuff, you dive in. Um, some become sort of life-changing and some don't. Some don't change your life, but everybody else thinks they're a big deal because they were at the time, but not at the time. They were just your day job. Yeah. So I went on to Next Computer. This is the company that Steve Jobs founded after getting kicked out of Apple. And technically it was called Next Inc. So it went from Apple to his next company. So he created it and called it Next. Okay, and it was only later when they discovered there's a retailer in Britain that they changed the name to Next Computer uh, to somewhat yeah. differentiate. So I had a boss and he had a boss, but over a period of time, about a half a year to a year, those two layers of management disappeared. So then I was reporting to Steve directly. And I was actually dotted line to him directly anyways because of the project I was running. I was running the largest account for the company at the time. Wow. Um, so I did that, worked for Steve and met a guy there named Eric. On a, it was a joint venture project with IBM, so early joint ventures. Yeah. And um, so my office at IBM with the other IBM folks, they had a summer hire named Eric. Well, 
if we flash forward quite a few years through a few different things that Eric and I did and such, uh, he later founds a company that he asked me to be a beta tester for. He's one of the FICO founder, and you would recognize the company's called LinkedIn. Yes. So I was course, a beta yes. tester there. Wow. And uh, so there's all these little sort of things that happen along the way that you don't think of, and then later it turns out to be a big deal. Mm. Um, a funny story on that, if you don't mind. At LinkedIn, one of the pieces of feedback I gave them, and I remember sitting on the phone on a conference call, Eric was on the line, and there's a second person, an engineer or something. And the feedback I was giving them is, I have all this background in computer science, and I've worked at Swiss Bank and a bunch of other places, and but I want to talk to people that have property as a background, so like the other interest on a CV or resume. And he goes, oh, no, 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 we can't have people talking to each other. <laughs> that that's not good. I mean, this is my paraphrasing uh, fuzzy memory. Yeah. And he said, "Tell you what we'll do. We'll create a group on Yahoo for the LinkedIn people who want to chat, and they can go over there to Yahoo. You know, we'll wow. just drive that traffic. We'll staff that over there because we don't want conversations. This was before they had groups, before they had special mm-hmm. interest topics, before they had associations, alumni, whatever. They had no sense that it was important to have dialogue online. That's right. It really was just a way of showcasing." Your CV, really? Yes. And that's it? Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, interesting. And so when did you make the transition from uh, Silicon Valley through to property? Uh, it happened quite early, and there's sort of a parallel track for quite a while. I was um, – when you graduate in computer science, you probably had a lot of stuff to do, and it was sort of fun now to go to a bookstore and buy books I wanted to read. And at some point, I bought the book Nothing Down – and in Silicon Valley, it was fairly common that engineers would get interested in some sort of investing activity. They ha- you had more money than you ever knew what to do with because you were used to being poor at university. Mm. And I took to real estate. Other people went a different direction. So I read this book, Robert Allen. It was 1981, 82, something like that. I remember a few years or a couple of years or a couple of months, whatever it was later, I was at my uh, then-girlfriend's uh, flat, apartment, whatever you want to call it, townhome, actually, and there was a TV commercial, an infomercial. And if you wanted to, you could hear them talk about the strategies that were in the Nothing Down book. That's not quite how they phrased it. San Jose, Red Lion, hotel, Wednesday night. If you show up, you know, call this number now. We've operated standing by. But if you show up, we'll give you a cassette tape, 45 <laughs> minutes aside. I remember cassettes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not, not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure you're that old. I am. <laughs> so... Um, I go to this event, and the guy says, you know, there's seven strategies you sign, and we're going to cover three of them. And it's like, well, what about the other four? And then there's, you know, we've got five of these, and but we'll do two of them tonight. And it's like, what about the other three? So then the sale comes. Well, I didn't, I had never been to these things before. I didn't know that you're going to get upsold, as we would now say it. So mm-hmm. sure enough, I signed up for the class. Now, the big problem was it was on the weekend. I lived in Montessorino. The class is going to be in San Francisco. There's no Google. There's no cell phones. There's paper maps. I have to find a hotel figure out where to park. I have to get it up an hour and a half, two hours earlier than I would for work. My boss was trained. I get in by 10. This starts at 8.30. It's 70 miles away. It's like, oh, my God. (laughs) Anyway, I did it. I went up Saturday, found it, took the class with a bunch of us. When the guy's presenting, he's using uh, a rolling, um, I forget what you call them, but he's got an overhead projector, and it's a rolling film of plastic. Oh, yeah, it's like fish hand- or something, microfish? Is that uh, what they call it? No, it's not, sort of like yeah. that, but yeah, I know what you mean. I remember those two at school, yeah. He's handwriting the slides. <laughs> you know, he flips the page in, the, in his manual that we all had a copy of, and he handwrites yeah. them and talks us through these strategies. So by Sunday, I figured, 
you know, I could probably do this. Uh, this makes sense. It matches the book. Funny mm-hmm. enough, it really matched the book. Re- <sighs> repurposing content. Yeah, that's right. These things you learn. So I decide I'll go in late on Monday because I'm pretty sure if I walk down the hill from the house in Montessorino that I'm sharing with some others, I could walk down to the estate agent's office. I th- think there's one there, a realtor's office. It's about a mile down the hill. It's in Los Gatos. Sure enough, Monday morning I walked down. There was one. My memory was good. You walk in on Monday. Now, in the U.S., agents aren't paid salaries. No. Prime time for agents are weekends and nights. So the Monday morning agent is not the best agent. It's the one who happens to be covering because someone has to to open the door. So I get this older guy who's probably, this may have been his second or fifth career for all I know. He asks me some questions. Where do I work? What do I make? All this stuff. He figures out more or less what I should be able to afford. He pulls out a book. Okay, there's no computer service on the web. There was a multiple listing service computer terminal you could type into, but he likes the paper version. We identify three properties. We jump in his car. Every house in America, when they're for sale, generally has a lockbox. The realtors have the key. They let themselves in. You see the house. Third one, I said, I like this one. Painters are just leaving. It was being redone. Um, We go back to his office and say, let's write it up. So that's the language in the States for when you're actually going to make an offer. And literally, it comes out in a pre-printed form that you fill in different things or the agent does for you. And 2 o'clock, I'm driving into work having signed it. 5 o'clock, he calls me, you got the house. So we've exchanged. This is, you know, the U.S. system. That's an exchange. We are in a binding How contract. Wonderful. It's like so, a credit card application. Okay, yeah. Exactly. And so from taking a weekend class to my first Nothing Down deal, MasterCard and Grandma were going to help out, and they hadn't called Grandma yet. <laughs> Uh, and the bank was going to get me a 95% loan at 10 and three quarter percent interest rate. Yeah. It floated monthly. Yeah. Those days. Yes, I remember those as well. Yeah. I remember 17, 18%. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you're not that old. I <laughs> am that old, John. No, no, that was in your history lessons. <laughs> yeah, he's being very nice. Okay, so you you managed to buy your first property very, very quickly and in in a, a, a very short space of time. And so fast forward, you then moved to London and you now run a property networking group as well on a Tuesday evening, is that right, every month? And how did you, yes. how did you start that and how did you, what, what made you then begin a property networking event or an education event? So let me tie these together but be a little quicker. So I worked at Next. Swiss Bank was our largest commercial customer. The black agencies of the U.S. government were the largest customer. Swiss Bank was recruiting because they needed some expertise couldn't find in the UK. They brought three of us into the UK. I was one of those three. So I uh, worked at Swiss Bank for a number of years, had the portfolio of properties in the States, didn't really do much here other than own one property. Uh, this is pre-Bidelet. Bidelet hadn't happened when I got here. It had happened by the time I finished at Swiss Bank five years later. So the a few things happen, family changes, country changes, company changes, and all that other stuff, but life rolls on with the investing. And then I, um, my second wife and I moved from London up to Chester for four years. Mm-hmm. She was working for MB&A, the credit card people. And we continue to do whatever. I'm doing some hard money lending in the States and some other things. So think of bridging. Yes. And I'm doing this all online. And I was commuting back and forth with the States because I have children over there at the time. I come back down to London with my wife and I go to this meetup thing for, um, uh, I can't remember the topic right now, and I asked people how they found it. They said, meet up. I said, what's that? They told me. So I go on to the meetup site, and they have a, they've seeded a bunch of groups, and one of them was real estate investing and buying or something. 
So for $60, $70, you get to buy the group and they'll host it. And I, that's how I kicked off the meeting in London because I had learned from my experiences in the States that you tend to find other people at networking events in the yeah. sense of property events and that you learn a lot. And there wasn't one that I could see in London, at least not one for meetup. So I thought, why not? I'll start one. And that was 11 years ago. So second Tuesday of the month, 11 years ago. It's wow. still the second Tuesday of the month. Yeah, and it's very well attended as well yeah. with some really interesting people because often in this property world, you do see the same people over and over. But what I like about your event is you do get new people in who come from various backgrounds who, and it just makes a makes for a more interesting networking event. Yes, I, I, mean, I believe, it, yeah. It's intentionally different. It, it almost intentionally is designed to attract to the people who have been to the other groups and now they want to graduate. Um, it's in the city. You'll get lawyers and accountants and insurance people and bankers and stuff. So the the caliber is good. The experience level tends to be high. Even people who are just getting started in property tend to be quite professional. They're risk managers at some large firm. So they, they get the financial industry. Therefore, they get what property is about. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it tends to be very experienced landlord or landlords, developers and things, very much like you. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I enjoy attending on the, the, the days that are the evenings that I have been. And look, going to your first networking event is quite a daunting experience. What what are you what's your advice for people who who might be considering coming along but just find it a little bit frightening? A couple of things and I'm going to do it try to do it from two points of view. So if you're running a meeting, you want to get people to interact. So in, one of the easiest ways to do that if you can run it because of the size is get everybody to introduce themselves. First name, what they've done outside of property and what their focus is in property. So then people have a reason to talk. They sort of know who they should talk to. They sort of know who, how to break the ice. If you're going to a, a meeting where that's not what happens at the beginning of the meeting, then the secret is a couple things. Um, it's not a secret, but it may be foreign to a lot of people. Try to look online ahead of time. See if anyone's going. Try to look up their profiles. Once you understand what they do, then you can actually speak to them. Um, also ask them, you know, what do you do when you're not in pro- uh, investing in property? Because once you find some things in common, it's you get chatting, you get talking. And yeah. don't be in a rush to, like, get the, the conversation to go somewhere. Just have a conversation. Yeah, that's right. Just a, a get to know you, really, rather than... What I find so irritating about networking events is when you start talking to someone and you can see them moving around, almost looking over your head or over your shoulder to see who, who might be more interesting for them to talk to. And I find that incredibly insulting. And I would suggest that anyone who is going to networking, don't, if you are stuck with someone that you're not interested in, try and make an excuse to leave them rather than look over their shoulder for someone who might be more interesting. <laughs> One sort of easy tip for the listeners is just say, you know, we're here to network, so it's been great meeting with you. I'd like to go meet some other people, um, unless there's something you want to continue talking about specifically. You've got to be careful about opening that door too much. Um, but just, you know, be blunt about we're here to network, so let's network. Yeah, that's right, rather than be, yeah. No, that's a really nice way of doing it. And you also leverage off your years of experience in property and mentor a number of people. And rather, th- what is it that you think a mentor can offer their mentee and, and how do you think it's best to work with a mentor as well if, you, if you're considering that? There has to be chemistry. Um, and it's sort of like dating that you start with a very simple conversation, let's have a coffee, a little bit of a chat, and find out if there's 
fundamental alignments, particularly values or uh, do people show up on time? If they're not going to show up in time, it's going to be hard to coordinate calendars and have conversations, things like that. So then it's more about does the person know things that you want to know? Be careful, though, because sometimes you think you know what you want, and it's the unknowns unknowns that maybe that other the mentor can actually uh, help pierce so they can help push your boundaries so look at the questions they're asking you are they getting you to think of things it's like oh my god they have an answer to a question i never even thought of and now i understand why that question could wipe me out so this is good what else do they know yeah. i also think there's an element of you probably should assume that you will graduate so how will you know when it's time to graduate what's the goal or yeah. what's the the, the termination point yeah mm. And you can sink back, you can cycle around, maybe you could even go to more of a mastermind format after you've built a number of relationships. But if you're going to have a mentor, try to think of it as like going to a school, university, whatever you want to call it, where you come in, you learn a bunch of things, you exit. Mm. And there's a purpose for being there rather than just, I I need help, right? I need someone to hold my hand. Now, mentoring one-to-one is an awful lot of someone's got your back, someone's holding your hand. How you set that up economically and how you arrange that so that there is mutual alignment but there's no real agenda is uh, important. That's right, because there has been a lot of issues in the past with um, mentors and mentees going into business together and then falling out and that Mm -hmm. then gets splashed across social media and it tarnishes, I think, the, the good mentors out there because there are a number of good mentors who just enjoy giving back their time and actually the teaching experience. Yeah. Some of us just like it. I mean, yeah. it's it's a passion to share. It's how I, in a sense, get started. I didn't necessarily have a direct mentor, but I would go to meetings. I would learn from other people. This, uh, So I worked in Silicon Valley where you're inventing the future. It hasn't been done before, so you can't just ask people who have already done it. They don't exist. Um, you can ask people who have invented other things. In the property space, there's almost nothing that's new. Uh, there's twists on rules, there's things done in one country that haven't been done here, there's legislative changes assigned that cause you to have to reinvent the model, but there's almost no fundamental change. So therefore you can find people like, have they already done it? Have they done something similar? Um, are they direct? Do they cut through the bullshit? Uh, there's a certain amount of, um, some people like to fluff things up to the point where they sound important, but it's like, you're, you're talking BS here. You know, yeah, like the substance? Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, I guess when you're looking for a mentor, what do you think the important things to consider are, rather than just going with the first person that might offer you mentoring? What what sort of questions would you ask someone before considering mentoring with them? So I think there's, in my world, and this is heavy bias towards that, there's two things. Um, there are people who need a mentor, coach, or a guide, or whatever, who are getting started and they're subsidizing this out of their day job. You know, there's going to be a cost to having a mentor, and they're funding that out of their day job. There are other people who already have enough of a business where literally their business is funding funding the cost of this education, mentoring, coaching, and the mentor could potentially even ramp things up enough in their business that it's like free money. So there's no cost to it. So you have to figure out, are you starting out where, frankly, you're not making any money or are you quite experienced and you're just taking it to the next level? So that'll tell you potentially who you should be working with. Some people who are good at the starting out aren't necessarily the right mentors for a much more experienced person and the reverse. Um, 
I, I really do think there's an element of you have to decide how long you think you're going to do it before you start. Yes. And then the set outside. a budget. What, how are you going to measure success? Mm. Will I know when I arrive? What are the KPIs? Mm. Um, I get that it's an unknown unknown. Fine. Then what are the questions you want to address? Or how many new things do you want to explore? So that there's some way that you could be measuring success. Because one of the problems with the mentoring relationship is you either become best mates, but you're paying or, or you're receiving the money, and that's maybe chemistry-wise a little different, or it starts to get quite stale. Well, it shouldn't get stale. That, that means you've passed the point you should have graduated. Yeah, so, there's, so. there needs to be reassessment points yep. within it with every set period so that both parties can reassess that relationship and move forward. Exactly. Yeah. Now, changing topics completely, but cool. still on property, cool. of course. <laughs> you and I, as well as uh, Tuksha and Davin at Simple Equity, have been doing a crowdfunding roadshow. We've gone to a number of locations in the UK. Uh, it's been really exciting. We I bought a round of beer in Exeter for six pounds, which six pounds thirty, which I thought was just incredible at a lovely brewery. Uh, so yeah, we've been to Exeter. Uh, we've been to London. Where else have we been so far? Um, well, actually, you missed the third one because oh, yes. you were on Bro- holiday and yes. you had one of your team step in, and Jane, she did a great yes. job, Jane. That's and true. that was at Brooklyn's, yeah. which was the Mercedes-Benz World. Uh, there's like a semi-test track and other car experiences there. So it's quite a cool venue. That looked amazing, uh, yeah. So. And then we've got Huddersfield coming up. Uh, we're working on a date for Glasgow, Manchester, Newcastle. I'm going up to Cambridge. So there's a number of dates coming up on the roadshow. But essentially, we're talking about crowdfunding, why people should be crowdfunding, and also the regulatory issues around joint ventures and taking other people's money and that's that's the point that you talk about and you discuss and mm-hmm. it's a it's an interesting one because i think many people in property who take other people's money who work with investors are actually walking a very fine line is that the right way of saying it or uh, very much so i mean you've come from a banking background i worked at silicon valley in banking also and if you're innovating, you may be ahead of the regulations or you may be ahead of the boundaries and you're inventing stuff that they haven't figured out yet. In other cases, particularly, this is a big problem in uh, property or maybe more globally called real estate, that the the regulations for real estate historically have not been set by the financial uh, regulators, the SEC in the US, the FCA here and whatever it is in the other countries. It's largely regulated separately because the residential side of it is mom and pop buy a house, they grow a family, they sell the house and all the rest of it. So that's done through a separate regulatory framework. The investors who start there are used to that. Then they start saying, oh, but I'm really good at finding deals. I have become quite good at being a property investor. Now I need to raise more money. Why can't I just talk to some people? And it's like, you know, because I got a great deal. And a lot of individual investors who are relatively naive but understand houses, understand property, say, oh, I'll put some money in. So then you suddenly go from being a property investor or a property developer or something else into now running a collective investment scheme that is a heavily regulated area. This is a guilty until proven innocent area in most advanced countries. And the property people don't understand. They just went into a landmine field. You know, they've been playing this nice lush field and they step over this line and suddenly there's landmines everywhere and no one's told them. The flip side, the FCA is quite innovative in some respects, is that 
they want to clamp down on people doing this, particularly if it's being done through social media and you're getting sort of people coming together in sort of weird and wonderful ways to crowdfund. And they said, but we are going to give you a viable alternative. You have to have like a path that works if you want to stop people from doing it wrong. So they created crowdfunding under the FCA. It was uh, 2014 when that came out. And they say, you know, as long as you follow sort of our guidelines and you use approved platforms, we're pretty much okay with this. And I think, in my interpretation, that's them saying, we know where to go to fix it if there's a problem. We know who to talk to when we have to fix it. And right now they are doing a review and they are making some changes to the regulations. And they're in a consultation period. They're in an advisory period. They'll probably be late this year, early next year, some new regulations. So that they're trying to protect the consumers from themselves. Yeah, exactly. So. Well, Let's just, let me throw an example out to you, which I think is quite common for property developers, and tell me if this is the wrong side of the law or not. So I'm in the gym and someone starts talking to me and I tell them what I do. They say, that's, they, they say that sounds great. Can I invest £50,000 with you? And I say, yep, sure, I've got this development, I need 200000 And then two more people, my hairdresser and my plumber, both decide that they want to invest 50,000 with me as well. So I've got 150,000 then I put my own 50 in. Now, my hairdresser and uh Joe who I met in the gym, they are very inactive within that uh development, but my plumber, my plumber, he is active in that in in this joint venture of four people grouping together to do this development. How does that look legally and what are some of the issues that I should be wary of if I am in that situation? Um, you've just Obviously, so- you're not a lawyer. I just no, need to I point understand. out, but it's but coming from I'm happy to tell you my interpretation of what yes. I've read from the direct documents and you can go to the F- FCA website and read this stuff. So I'd say you just pulled the, pull, the pins out of about a half a dozen hand grenades and then walked away. <laughs> uh, and they all have timers and they're all yeah. going to go off. Um, the problem is they will come after you. Yeah. So the the FCA, the SEC, others like this have a view that they're there to protect consumers from the naivete of the consumers. That unless you're a professional and qualified or somehow exempt from the regulations, you shouldn't even know about it. So it's similar to pornography in a shop. It has to be behind a brown wrapper. Alcohol's behind the counter. I need to see an ID to prove your age. Tobacco. There are certain things that we say in society that the average person doesn't have access to them until they pass a test. Yeah. Talking to someone in the gym means you didn't run the test. And you're the one speaking. You're the one, therefore, is assumed to be promoting Um. If you respond to the, what do you do? Oh, I'm a developer. That's fine. Oh, yeah, I've got some money. Do you ever take outside investment? You can probably even say yes. But you can't talk about a deal that someone could invest in until after you've made sure that they are not one of the protected people. And the assumption in the UK, and this is being broad, uh, recorded in the UK, be, being broadcast globally, the SEC is pretty close to this, or not, or maybe worse, and Italy, Australia, whatever, some of these are going to have very strict rules, so check your local rules. The assumption is you have to stop as the person speaking and saying, I'm not sure I can share with you this information. I need to understand who you are better before I can do that. So that's one problem. Yeah. And it, the crime is to share the information. The crime is not to take their money. 
So yes. you can get arrested for sharing because you're sharing information the public's not supposed to have access to. Big sure. problem. Yeah. There was someone recently that got a knock on the door from the FCA because their website was essentially encouraging investors to get in touch. I don't know the exact wording, um, but the FCA wasn't happy. So now they have to change that, and there may be some repercussions. So let's go to the second problem. You have now put an active investor, the plumber, with Joe and Mary, uh, the hairdresser, assuming that was Mary. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have inactive passive investors who are along for the ride. We have an active investor who's a plumber, and when you say he's active, is he just doing the plumbing, or is he actually making the decisions of whether the roof needs to be redone and all these other things? So there is the possibility under most frameworks and legislation that the principles of the firm, the people who are in charge, the people who have control, are they can come together. Classically, they're supposed to come together before the deal, not after the deal. So you're not raising money for a deal you have. You're coming together as a team to go find a deal. And that's the distinction. There's a, yeah, there's a bit of that there. Yeah. Um, in the UK, it's probably okay if you have one investor with you, passive or not. Um, single investor seems to be an exemption that works according to some legal advice. If you have these three people, you're a collective scheme. Um, if you're not registered with the FCA as a financial promoter, you cannot allow to talk about collective schemes. Collective schemes are either unregistered or registered as a scheme. This sounds unregistered. So you definitely, I mean, it's a crime to be letting people even know about it. Then it's a, you've confirmed the crime and get provided more evidence by collecting the money from these people. And for the most part, I'm not, this is not legal advice or regulatory advice, but for the most part, the FCA is not going to care until there's a problem. Exactly. Someone gets divorced, they need the money. The hairdresser's mm -hmm. shop has a fire, she needs the cash. How's she going to get the cash? She's going to call the FCA to say, well, I got into this thing and I don't know about this. And now the FCA is going to come to you. Yeah. Their remedy is to for you to make the person whole as if they never had talked to you. Well, if you're in the middle of development, do you have the money laying around to do that? There can be a forced sale of that property. Therefore, you could end up in quite financial pain. Um, how they choose the remedy is questionable or to be seen. It, it mostly comes down to trying to protect the consumer who should never have been there in the first place. So what can we do to squeeze the developer to get the consumer made whole so they can walk away as if it never happened? But that may not be very good for you. So no, it's frightening. It, it really is frightening because I, I do believe that the majority of property developers who work with investors are acting illegally. Quite bluntly. Um, yes, I would agree. And I would agree not only the, the illegality is the communication. Yes. That's at least one layer of it. They don't have to be successful raising the money. So the people who are posting on Facebook, particularly in private groups, closed groups, and JV threads or whatever, there's multiple ones of these. You know, capturing everybody that posted in that is very easy. And if the FCA, <clears throat> excuse me, the FCA wants that list, They'll ring Facebook. Facebook will mm -hmm. cough it up almost instantly. That's the evidence that you're committing a crime. Yeah. And uh, you you were spot on before where you said that everything's fine until something goes wrong. And that's the same with any investor relationship. They will be happy while you're making money, but the one moment either they have a personal issue or a professional issue where they need those funds oh. back or you don't deliver, yeah, as you yeah. said, then there's a problem and then they can complain and then there's potential legal issues around that. So what are some of the ways that 
developers like myself who work with investors, what are some of the ways that we can mitigate that risk and act responsibly and legally? Obviously, crowdfunding's one, but are there any other options? So before we go into that, so one of the things, as an investor, the law protects you so you're not necessarily causing any crimes to happen. You may be part of it, but you are the victim, so to speak. Yeah. But you also don't want your money tied up. So maybe I don't need my money. It's the other person in the group that suddenly has a wobble um, that caused the FCA to show up. Now the project's tied up, so now my money's tied up in a project that's not going to go well. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, do you really, as a smart investor, do you really want your money with someone who's being dumb about the regulations? Because yeah. they're creating exposure and risk for you as the investor, even though you're not actually doing anything that causes it. You're you're sort of in the bus when the crash happened. Um now, let's go back to the regulation question. So, you can do investments with family. You can do investments with friends of long standing. And you have to be able to prove that they were long standing if challenged. And the fact that you met them at a networking event and had beers with them doesn't count. Uh, it might be 10 year relationship and all the rest of it, went to school, all these other things. Those are sort of thin exemptions. You're depending on your ability to prove. You know, it could be your ex-wife or ex-husband is therefore a friend of long standing or actually a relative for this test. They don't have to be current wives or family. But at the same time, you won't be able to expand very far. You're going to run out of people anyways. Yeah. And particularly if you're entrepreneurial, you may be coming from a lower economic background. So a lot of your family and friends don't have a lot of money. You're, you're creating your own wealth. Therefore, you don't have the network in the past. If you then go to the regulated side, you need to have an FCA-approved person to sign off, to manage, to be the person who does the promotion. You can hire an investment bank. They typically won't be interested unless you're raising millions of millions or paying them millions of millions, and then they don't care. Um, you can go to a boutique firm, so maybe the threshold's a little lower, but they're still going to charge you a bunch of fees. They have their professional standing at risk, and they don't want to work on little stuff. If they could work on big stuff, they only have so many hours. Or you can go to a crowdfunding site, which a crowdfunding site allows you for relatively low cost and a pay-as-you-go model. Talk to the public. Talk to the crowd. And essentially, they are the FCA-authorized person who are blessing whatever communication you're sharing. And you do have to get your communication blessed before you share it. Yeah, that's right. Once you do that. So, you know, I could ask you, Nicole, that, you talk about book building and things, but there's essentially, once you know you have an FCA person approving things, then they can tell you, here's how you do it. And you're quite experienced in the field, uh, in the banking world, so you know what this is really about and why it's there. And it's actually not very hard, and it's actually quite powerful. And would you rather up your game and be one of the legitimate people doing things correctly, or do you want to be one of the people who's just lazy, trying to get around the rules and hoping no one comes knocks on the door? Yeah, for saving so. a few few percent, yeah. I'm not even sure they're saving a few percent. I know one guy, he said, if I had done this in crowdfunding, I would have paid the 5% fee on the particular platform he was thinking of using and some minor legals. He paid three times that amount in legal costs because he's dealing directly with three investors and he had three sets of legal discussions and three sets of contracts and three sets of negotiations. And he goes, I blew way more on the legals than I would have if I just used the crowdfunding site. Yeah, that's right. And as you know, I do a lot of crowdfunding. We've raised nearly $6 million over the last few months. And for me, that was the reason 
the the regulatory the potential risk to me and my lifestyle of having one per one disgruntled investor uh just completely upset the apple cart yes. that was that was the biggest risk and that's why we have gone completely ahead with uh, crowdfunding for most of our our developments that require investors it just to me it allowed me the peace of mind to be able to sleep at night now with so our- a little tangent to that so there are some examples of online blowouts um don't know the facts so i can't really comment but i know they got out of hand when it comes to social media and it destroyed businesses Yes, and exactly. it messed up transactions yeah. um, and reputations. And exactly, and as Warren Buffett says, you know, you can lose your reputation forever very quickly, even, yeah. but it takes a lifetime to build it. So one of the things I've been pushing with crowdfunding with the people I work with who have actually funded deals is it lets you be quite transparent, lets you be quite open. People can choose to invest or not. If you set a low threshold, they can choose to put their toe in the water. They don't have to put their life savings on the line. Um, it's diversified. You can have a grumbling investor, but if it's one of 20 investors, there's an element of the other 19 are going to say, what are you grumbling about? Yeah, or, or I'll buy your shares. Can you go away? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's certainly an element of registration at a company's house and other details and transparency that you don't get with the typical JV. So it makes it a lot easier for the rumors to get squelched by, like, just go look up the data. Here's the information. Here's the reference. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's it. There's a, there's a transparent proven system and process in place so that that's not always in place if you're just doing an investment direct with developer smith from birmingham for example so and that's what i like is just to be able to put these systems in place that people can clearly uh they know what to expect and what and there are no surprises and that's when that's when investors get upset and i always say that you always have to under under promise with your investors because if you deliver one pound less than what they're expecting, they're disappointed. If you if you deliver two pounds more, they're happy. Yes, <laughs> so you yes, just have yeah. to. It's all about expectations and management of that. And with our crowdfunding, we we've done quite vanilla type equity raises so far. We have uh, just offered up a percentage of the equity in exchange for the. Uh, percentage return in that but it doesn't have to be like that does it and i know that you've been involved in a couple of crowdfunding deals where they're not just vanilla transactions raising for the purchase or development of the the projects they're they're a little bit more i guess interesting so uh, tell us about some of the ones that you've been involved in so uh, and i want to frame this that when I speak and I run these monthly meetings, a lot of times I'll ask people, what's debt, what's equity? And actually, people become quite, um, they start to squirm a little because actually they really only know debt and equity in the context of deposit and loan from a bank or something for a property. So they're very vanilla. Very, I mean, it's like they're not only just vanilla, they're only the V. They haven't done the rest of the word yet. Mm-hmm. So then when you get into more sophisticated, complex structures or sort of different types of shares and things like that, it just blows them away. And for the audience listening, Nicole's background is quite sophisticated when it comes to equity research and the whole global financial industry. So uh, she could probably run lectures on how to structure finance and things like that. It was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Your your memory's (laughs) good. I'm a bit rusty, my CFA. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, So you can actually... 
I want to highlight it two ways. One is you can break down the project, and this is not necessarily what you've done where you can actually fund just the phase of the project, so just the planning phase or just the acquisition uh, agreement or something or just the construction of phase one, not phase two. So you can actually have more discrete phases to the overall uh, opportunity. So the investors can have a shorter life they can have a more pure play. They only want to invest planning. They get a higher return. They could lose 100%. I mean, completely wiped out on a planning application that gets turned down. Or they could get 30 40 50 80% return, and they'll know in 6 to 12 months generally. Uh, no construction um, issues. No f- people falling off of ladders wiping out the project because they were out of the project by then. So you can actually have people buy time in and out as investors. You can use different classes of shares or different um, preference items in the shareholders agreement so that they have a preferred return or they have a cap on the return or there's a formula for the return. So you can actually design equity to look like a debt instrument. So it looks as if you're getting a fixed return because of the way the the equity's been set up. So for the lender who might be providing the construction financing, it's equity, but for the tier of finance that you brought in from the crowd, they're getting a fixed return. Maybe they're getting their return ahead of you, the developer, so they know that they're further up the food chain than uh, the other people. But at the same time, they they have this whole... Um, you don't want to make it too complex because yeah, the audience right. may not to understand it. To understand, yeah. And frankly, most of the people I work with, this is not where they're coming from. They understand buildings. They understand how to buy a deal below market value or add value or improve it or change the user experience. They don't really understand finance, so they'd struggle to explain it. Mm. So while a CFA from the financial industry could come up with all kinds of wild and wacky things that actually could work quite well, some of them, you know, that's probably down the road a bit before the, the community of investors understand it. As um, simple crowdfunding talks about, it needs to be transparent it needs to be simple, as in people can understand it. And it has to be something the crowd can get their heads around, so that even deeper on the understanding. So the more you can keep it simple and transparent, the easier it is for the crowd to understand it, and the more likely they're going to say, okay, I'll put some money in. Yeah. And my suggestion to investors is, if you're not sure, but otherwise you like it, what's the minimum you can put in, and are you happy to lose that? So if it was 100 pounds and you would have spent that for dinner for two, can you afford to get rid of one dinner if it goes badly and you learn along the way? So invest to learn in a sense. That's right. And that's one of the one of the crowdfunding projects that you have been involved in also has an education element yes. where people can tune into a monthly is it, uh, web, webinar. So for the two projects we've done this and we're, there's a third one up now, um, it's there's only two webinars. There's the one at the front end. Sure. And actually, this is not a webinar like slides with a talking voice. This is actually a bit of slides to set a tone, but everybody's on camera, so all the investors can see each other on camera. They oh, can right. ask questions. Yeah. It's quite interactive. Yeah. Uh, we do that at the front. We also do it at the end for the debrief. But what they get in between is every week there's an update posted to the, um, to the site where the recordings are stored, and they can ask questions if they want. They can look at the status and stay up to date. Um, to be blunt, a reasonable number of the investors have put in enough for one share, maybe it's 100 pounds, and they probably haven't looked since they did it. You know, But it's there, it's historical, they can go back and look at it, they'll have access, so they don't have to learn as it happens. In a sense, they're a passive investor, so it's fine if they learn all at the end, and yeah. they can catch up quite easily. Do you think then that they're, with, sh- with crowdfunding, that there's an element of 
just excitement that goes along with it. People just want to be part of the crowd. They just want to be along for the ride. So as you say, there's some people who are in that deal, not because they necessarily want to uh, get a a £50 return on their £100 investment, but just because they really like being part of that particular project. Um, So in a sort of direct way, you're describing human beings. Yeah. We like to go when there's a cool place to go to that others are going to. We like to be in the conversation. We want to support the team when it's winning. We don't show up when it's losing. You know, that's human nature. Yeah, so it is. there's no reason that people wouldn't be that way with crowdfunding. The um, If someone is putting in a much smaller amount, a very trivial amount such that if they forgot about it completely, it wouldn't have any impact on their life, those people might get busy with something else. They may have invested because they want to show support. They, they not only want to be part of the crowd, and it isn't that public, actually, when they do it. It tends to mean the other shareholders will know who they are, but it's not like it's heavily shared on social media. But they want to show support. They want to be involved. There's also a technicality. Uh, the FCA has this idea that if you invest in two deals, separate deals, equity is my interpretation of this rule, that once you've done two investments, you'll be considered a sophisticated investor which does open the conversation for you as an investor to other things that aren't necessarily available because they're restricted to sophisticated high net worth investors. So you can qualify. You can go from being an ordinary retail investor to a sophisticated investor by doing two deals. So and that's a really key point, isn't yeah, it? That you can put £100 pounds in two different deals yeah. and in the eyes of the FCA for the next 12 months, is it? It's actually 18 months. 18 months, you're viewed as a sophisticated yep. investor and yeah, you can self-certify, is that right? So be, just so it's really clear, it's £100. Pounds. If that's if the minimum of one share is £100, it'd be £100 pounds times two, so £200 pounds total. I know of one crowdfunding site for property, um, it's £20 pounds minimum, so it'd be £40 pounds total. And then you're a sophisticated investor for 18 months, and you can maintain your sophisticated status just by every so often. Or, you know, If you find a deal you like, only when you like it, only when you think the risks are appropriate, that this is how you maintain your status. And that's important, by the way, if you're a property developer, because if you have investors in your deal who are not, sorry, who were brought in because they were exempt, and you didn't do it through crowdfunding, you did it privately, somehow you found a legal way to do it, and they ceased to be exempt... They're no longer sophisticated high net worth. It is required by PS 13.3 that you move them out of the investment no matter what they want to do. And you must do it at no harm to them. The onus but is on you. You have to push them out, even yeah. if it means pushing them to a lower risk investment as a stepping stone. And you have to basically find a glide path to exit them without them giving you permission. Yeah, okay. And that's a. this is now a mechanism in which you can do that. This is a way for them to maintain their status. Yeah. Okay, so the benefit for the investor to invest via crowdfunding is they get access to some exciting, interesting, and potentially uh, rewarding financially uh, investments. And the benefit to the developer is quite clear because they get to capture... Actually, let me add to that. So there's two other benefits. One is they get to tap into someone who's probably better than they are. Yes, so they get to learn from the experience. Well, not just learn, but there's some people who's like, I'm too busy. I'm never Mm going to be able to do what Nicole does in property development but I can basically tag along and get the benefits economically that she gets, more or less, 
way better than the benefits of when I'm sitting in my day job reading about how maybe I could be a property investor but making no progress. Yeah, that's so right. you're buying expertise. You're, you're getting a free pass to the possible future state that you want to participate in without actually having to do all the hard work. Yeah. You and need to do the due diligence. projects because I, yeah. that's one thing when I'm speaking to developers, they say, how do you find such great profitable projects? So by investing yes. into them, you're participating in those projects. I'm tapping, if I invest in one of your deals, I'm tapping into your team. I'm tapping into your legal people. I'm tapping into your builders and all the rest of it. So I know one person raises money and they tend to find a lot of their money comes from other developers. It's like, your deal's better than my deal. I'm just going to put my money in your deal. That's me. Yeah. yeah. We, we, I think the majority of our investors are other developers. And it's for that exact reason. They just It's more lucrative for them to invest in ours while they've got that cash, they need to utilize it. So they invest in ours while they're looking for their own. Exactly. Yeah. And the other side is, um, or the other benefit is, when individuals are investing through the crowd, they possibly, if they're smart how they do this, they can diversify quite easily. So instead yes, of being exactly. all in in one deal, they can spread the money over 10 deals. Yeah. A plane could land there, a bus could crash, there could be a tidal problem or archaeological dig issue or something. So if you're all in in one deal and that you find the skeletons from King so-and-so, that could mess you up. Where if you've got 10% in that deal and 10% in, in nine other deals, you'll have a blended return. You'll have, uh, no, you're not just betting on one team or one location and one decision. And so. different types as well. If you look across our different projects that we've got on we listed on simple equity we've got four new build houses we've got uh large flat developments we've got various things you can invest in developments in in norfolk and in north of england and in london and all these various luxury flats in south Kent. and so yes. it gives you yep. this this overview and insight into these various aspects of development that you otherwise wouldn't. And I think so that's I think the benefits to the investor are quite clear and the the benefits to the developer are also clear in that they get access to the funds. But one other point I wanted to to pick up on is that branding. And I think it's one thing that's clear when we do our crowdfunding. This is the branding queen now giving you a tutorial <laughs> on branding. No, this is I think this is really big stuff and it I is. think you're bloody good at it so thank you John. <laughs> so you do need to share this a bit that this is a big thing that most developers miss they're so fixated on the property they don't understand the need to build a brand yeah so talk to us well no i i want your opinion john it's i, I think that what john's done very well with the people he's worked with to help them uh, list projects on on crowdfunding platforms is that you might not list just because you need the funds. You might list a, a crowdfunding opportunity to for planning gain, for example, because you want to build your profile so that yes. when you go back to the crowd to ask for, instead of £15,000, if you go back to ask for 200000 you've already built a crowd of people who've watched you and who trust you and like your process. So when you go back for more money, it's an easier... Sell, I guess, or an easier presentation to make. I can add a little to that. So, um, there's four different projects I've either worked on or working on at the present time. They're all planning gain projects. They're three different developers in three different locations across the UK. In three out of four, they don't need the money. In fact, most of the time, the money they needed has already been paid for everything they need to pay. They're, in a sense, retrospectively sharing something they've already funded. Um, and every single one of them, it's uh, except well, three out of the four, 
they are literally looking at doing the next phase of the same site, and they want to build their brand. They want to get investors warmed up. It's the first coffee, kissing frogs to find the prince. It's all of those normal things that we do in all sides of our lives, but developers don't think of doing classically. And now you can legitimately put it on Facebook, legitimately share yes, Instagram, legitimately right. go to LinkedIn and property tribes and have open debates about some of the information that's public. You have to be careful. You're not supposed to have a debate about the actual investment other than on the approved site. But you can have all this sort of exposure. You can get people warm and fuzzy, over-deliver, under-promise. They make money. It's like, wow, can we do that again? This mm -hmm. time I'm going to go in for more than one share. Um, you have people who are singing your praise or sharing information or crucifying you if you actually screw up because you're a scammer. Well, you know, I'm personally hoping that some of the scammers get squished out. Exactly. And that they, the crowd or the investors with capital who are maybe less knowledgeable saying, well, I'd happily invest in this if you put it on the crowdfunding site. And the scammer's like, well, I can't do that. <laughs> it's too <laughs> transparent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, it is a very positive thing for the developers to start to raise their profile. And you're not, it's almost like you're spending money on marketing that you should have allocated to marketing, but you didn't. And are you actually spending money? Okay, maybe you're upping your cost of your project, but if you're doing it in an early phase, you can offer a very, a very attractive return but for a small piece of money. So the overall project, it's almost in rounding error. It's almost like, okay, we had an extra load of concrete or something, fine, you know, we'll deal with it. It just makes sense. It does, yeah. No, I, I, I... And if anyone's listening, I can explain this better, but it might be helpful because <laughs> I'm waving my hands here. If I could like, draw on a whiteboard when I explain it, so you know, we'll, we'll happily have a sort of visual version That's of this at some point. Sure. Well, look, to wrap up on that, there are a number of opportunities where you can uh, meet John and, and see him go into more detail about not only the crowdfunding and the branding, but uh, other aspects in property. And where can people find you, John? Um, so not as easily as Nicole, but I am on social media. You know, as we were saying earlier before we started this uh, session, Nicole and I, I was actually paid in 1982 to be online. So I sort of have a long tail of an online presence. But LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Google, John Corey, you have to be careful. There is a, a character in a, a police detective series called John Corey. So it's not that oh, one. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I try to use the same photo though for me so yes. if you see the guy with the glasses that has the white hair that's probably me and we'll put all the links up uh, anyway. exactly and there's the propertyfortress.com website which is makes it easy but i don't want to make it too easy you know people yeah. should work with google yeah, and facebook right, right? yeah <laughs> so. great well thank you so much john it's been really fascinating especially i think the the crowdfunding and your background that's that is really really interesting thank you very much for your time today thank you and it's been great talking to you and it's great sharing with the audience here